All right, what's up, guys? Hey, hey, hey. Welcome. Welcome back. If you were wondering, yes, I prefer ham. That's right. Yes, it's true. Don't boo me, please. My goodness. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, I prefer ham. Wow, what a privilege. We're back here on a Thursday night. Guys, we've only got a couple of these left. We've got tonight, no, no salt company next week for Thanksgiving. We're back for one week. And then the week following that is our last one. Can you believe it? Oh my goodness. So we got to soak it up. We got to soak it up. Guys, tonight you might be wondering, hey, Austin, why are you wearing a Vikings jersey? We don't even play tonight. That's correct. <laughs> There's two reasons why I'm wearing this Vikings jersey. One, I'm riding the wave, guys. This is, this is a glorious sequence that we've had. Are you kidding me? Five-game win streak, I'll take it. But there's a second reason I'm wearing this. Second reason I'm wearing a Vikings jersey is because my intro is about, you know, this, there's going to be a trigger word, okay? Achilles. Uh, Kirk Cousins. We miss the guy, you know? Great dude. We love Kirk Cousins, but the Achilles, it got him too, you know? It's really tragic. Here's the thing. Do you guys, do you guys know the story of Achilles? Yes. Okay. He's from Greek mythology, right? There's a legend that, uh, you know, he was a fantastic warrior, strongest of them all. He was famous for his influence in the Trojan War, okay? Great, significant strength, but Greek legend has it that he was virtually unstoppable, right? Unbeatable strength, great wit when it came to wartime uh, strategy, and yet... He had one little, one little weakness, right? One little blemish, a weakness, a, a, a spot where if you got it, you might just take him down. Just that one little weakness, right? It was in the back of his heel, on just one of his heel. And of course, as the Greek legend goes, he had major influence, but of course, at one point, somebody would exploit his one small weakness and he would die just from one simple wound in the back of his heel, a mortal wound. And so we get the coined phrase, Achilles heel, right? You're familiar with this, of course. The Achilles heel, what is it? It's when one weakness, someone's weakness will ultimately lead to their downfall. The Achilles heel, somebody's weakness ultimately leads to their total downfall. Man, don't we believe this? We believe that if we've got weakness, even if it's just the tiniest ounce of weakness, that that's going to be the thing that is ultimately going to lead to our downfall. That we've all got an Achilles heel. But we don't want to be associated with Achilles. Nobody wants to have their one weakness exploited so that their entire life story is summed up in association with an injury. Like nobody wants their life story, their life to be remembered as how they ultimately failed. Nobody wants their weakness to ultimately be the thing that destroys them. And so what do we do? It becomes logic that we should eradicate weakness. Throw it out. I don't want any weakness a part of my life. Or if we can't do that, we should at least hide it. We should at least hide weakness. Don't let anybody know about it. Certainly don't let God know about it. 
Because what would happen if somebody exploits my weakness? Will it be my downfall? So what are some of these weaknesses that all of us have to struggle with? What are these things that we're scared that might ultimately become our downfall? Maybe it's the inability to resist desires. Maybe it's this reality that, man, if we think about it, the spirit is willing. The Bible talks a lot about this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I feel weak when it comes to resisting things that I know aren't good for me. Or maybe it's a physical limitation. We're weak in the sense that there's a physical injury, an illness. Maybe it's economic disadvantage. Weakness in the sense that we don't have all the right resources that we think we need to thrive. Maybe it's lack of knowledge or expertise or wisdom. We feel weak in the sense that we don't have what we think we need or we don't know what we think we should in order to succeed. Or maybe we feel like we're weak socially and that we can't really just, we just can't connect with people. For whatever reason, there's weakness in my inability to jive with people. Jive. Are you kidding me? I can't believe I just <laughs> said jive. Okay. <laughs> Weakness, right? We've all got something in that list where it feels like, man, is that going to be the thing that consistently I'm struggling with that will ultimately be my failure? Will weakness lead to my downfall? Well, the text tonight is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You guys can turn there if you've got a Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in this, in this letter, it's a guy named Paul that's writing this letter to a Corinthian church. He's got a new perspective about weakness. This is not Greek mythology tonight. We're talking about Christian theology on weakness. How does God feel about it? How should we feel about weakness? Is it like Achilles in that we should hide, we should get rid of it, just in case it gets exploited. Is that how we should view weakness or is it something different? Second Corinthians chapter 12, and in order to get there, Paul is going to talk about two separate experiences, the heaven experience and the thorn experience, okay? And we're gonna start with the heaven experience. This is Second Corinthians chapter 12. This is what Paul says. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The heaven experience. Okay, here's what was happening in the Corinthian church. Get this, there were people called the super apostles. Kind of a cool name. Here's what they were doing. They were known as the super apostles because what they were doing is they were boasting 
in their experiences that they were having with God. They were boasting in these visions and revelations from God, okay? And they were using those experiences to try and earn authority from people. They were boasting in these experiences so that more people would follow them. They were boasting in these experiences so that people would trust them. But what happened was some of these super apostles were not actually preaching the one true gospel of grace. And so Paul is trying to get his people back on track. He said, hey, no, I want you to keep in line with the true gospel that Jesus died, rose, and that you can have salvation by grace through him. But Paul is in a tricky situation here. He starts by saying, I must go on boasting. Because you see, the Corinthian church was being lured by these super apostles through their boasting. And so the only way for Paul to actually get them to trust him and say, hey guys, no, get back on track was for him himself to also convince them he was worth following. And so we get this passage here that's saying, man, the super apostles are like forcing my hand. They're making me have to boast in these sweet experiences that I've had to prove, hey, no, you can trust me. You can trust that the wisdom that I give you in the true gospel is right. It's a tricky situation and you can see uh, how, how conflicted he was. He's like, I must go on boasting, but there's not really a benefit to it. But if I have to, if I have to, I will. And if you were to read this section again, in verse seven, you'd be able to tell that he's so reluctant to talk about his own experiences that it's in the third person. Did you catch that? He was saying, I know a man 14 years ago that got caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about himself, but he's trying to disconnect because he doesn't wanna boast. By the way, the third heaven, is anybody like, yo, there's layers to this thing? The third heaven, it's a way that they called, I mean, they kind of had layers, but it was just for their minds to wrap around it. The first heaven was just like immediate sky, right? Air around us. Second heaven was the sky or like the stars and the moon, you know, outside the atmosphere. Third heaven, paradise, where God dwelled, right? So caught up into the third heaven, like he said, paradise with God. Okay, Paul is talking about an experience that he had and he's wanting them to make sure, he's wanting them to know that he's had this sweet experience, but he's so reluctant to boast in it that he's talking about it in the third person. But have you ever thought about like, dude, this had to be crazy. Look at all that he, all that he talks about is that he heard things that man cannot utter. Do you imagine what, he, what this experience was like? This had to be amazing. He says he doesn't even know if it was an in-the-body experience or an out-of-the-body experience. He says that twice. He's like, I don't even know what this was, man, but it was awesome. But he doesn't go much more into that. All he quotes is that he had it. He's reluctant to share it, but he did. And it was amazing. So why doesn't he give us even more of the picture? Why doesn't he get into the details? Why isn't he always talking about this experience? He's trying to give us a principle that true intimacy with God is not meant for other people's ears, but it's meant for our soul to enjoy. 
that when people have really come in contact, that have come dangerously close to God, that it's not ultimately so that they can just go on and boast about it, but it's actually for the personal soul level encouragement of that person so that they can just be near God and enjoy him. That's the purpose. People who actually have amazing encounters with God don't brag about them. It's, it's exactly the same reason why nobody wants to hear somebody who's just been intimate with their partner. They don't, you don't wanna hear them talking about it. If, some, if your buddy is coming back from a party on the weekend and is talking your ear off about how awesome this experience was with this girl and how close they were and all this, oh, it's like, oh my goodness. No, you don't wanna hear that. The one thing that both of you know when they're talking about that experience is, is that no true intimacy happened there. The same is with our relationship with God. Why are we approaching time with God as just a thing to have on our list that we can then go to somebody and brag about it? True intimacy with God is not meant to be bragged about, but to be enjoyed by you. It's a sweet invitation, but it's personal, right? In the case of the super apostles, it isn't that the spiritual experiences that they had were bad in in themselves, but they were using them to brag about them. Paul experienced these same wild encounters with God too, but he's trying to give us a little bit of the picture that, hey, these heaven experiences, these amazing experiences where you get to see God face to face and enjoy him, that's also not the full picture. You see, boasting in amazing experiences and spiritual highs and chasing those things, if we boast in those and those become everything, then there's a risk of us starting to think that Christianity is only real when those amazing experiences are happening. That Christianity is only really genuine if I'm always experiencing visions and revelations from the Lord. It's only for the good times. It's only for when I'm feeling especially spiritual. But here's what we see Paul talk about next. The Christian life is not always about chasing the spiritual high. Here's what he says in verse six. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. And this is the money part. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It's a reminder that the Christian life is about character. And so these spiritual experiences, these heaven experiences are extremely valuable for personal intimacy, but what they should always lead to is not boasting, but high character. Jesus is the perfect example of this. I mean, Paul was taken up into the heavens, right? Had this amazing experience. Jesus is God and has spent eternity past in heaven, in the throne room, enjoying it. And then when he was sent down onto the earth for 33 years, what did he do with his life? What is the character that he had? 
He had the amazing experience of being in the throne of God. And then when he was on the earth, what did he do? He served. He was patient. He was compassionate, full of love, full of joy. He laid his life down. That's the result of true intimacy with God. Not boasting, but service in compassion. This is the type of character that we should aspire to, but you only get it if you are spending that time with God. The only true way to live that high character life is to have these beautiful experiences where you're being filled up through intimacy with God. But you can't just claim it. You've got to live it. If this is the case, then we start asking this question like, oh my goodness, if I want high character, wouldn't the best thing for my life, wouldn't the best thing to happen would be spiritual experience after spiritual experience, spiritual high always writing it, always feeling great, always feeling like I'm super filled up. Wouldn't that be the thing that always produces high character? Like if I would just have an out-of-body experience like Paul every day, wouldn't that make me a person of patience? Wouldn't that make me a person of compassion? Have you asked that question? Many of us, we, like, we want that heaven experience that sweet moment of seeing God face to face and being amazed. But often we're more familiar with something that feels like the opposite. We'll call it the thorn experience. This is what Paul is gonna talk about next, starting in verse seven. Would you read with me? Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Isn't that awesome? Man, why do we have weakness? Why do we have struggles? Paul says that he got his thorn to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from becoming too confident in himself, to keep him from thinking that he could do this by himself, to keep him from thinking that his relationship with God was ultimately a matter of his ability. And so we receive a thorn in the flesh to keep us from thinking that we can do this life on our own. Because of your sin, the heaven experience that you want could be, it could tempt you to believe that that is Christianity. It could tempt you to believe that you've got it figured out. Could tempt you to believe that you are doing religion the right way. 
And God, because of his grace, because he's good and kind and knows you fully and loves you fully, he's given you what you ultimately need when he introduces struggle into your life, a thorn in the flesh. Okay, I just want you to draw your attention to the literary genius that Paul is using right here. He's talking about a thorn in the flesh. Here's the deal. There's two ways that Paul knew anybody could read this. He knows that in the flesh could mean two things. It could mean in the flesh as in a bodily limitation, like my flesh and bone. There is a thorn in the flesh. There is a weakness in my actual body. Or he knows that it could mean your sinful flesh. The nature part of you that is bent the wrong way. The part of your nature that rejects God. The part of your nature that does things and wants things that are apart from his good design. A a thorn in the flesh could be a physical struggle or it could be a sin struggle. We don't actually know which one he was dealing with here. But this is wise on his part because it lets us as the reader read, he's got a thorn in the flesh and we can instantly write ourselves into that same sentence. He wants you to be able to actually put yourself here. What is the thorn in your flesh right now? Is it a sin struggle? Is it that thing that you wish you would have knocked years ago, but still there? Man, maybe you guys got baptized on Sunday and you had this sweet spiritual experience, but then even this week has been incredibly discouraging because you're recognizing your weakness still. Man, maybe school is just kicking your butt right now. And so you're coming here just to get some, just a breath of fresh air. Is there a loss of a relationship that was thriving earlier in the semester, but now it's, it's gone and you're grieving the loss? Is it anxiety about the future? What's the thorn in your flesh right now? You see, Paul, when he had his thorn in the flesh, this is what he was asking God to do, right? He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Take it away. Get rid of this. I don't want this weakness anymore. I don't want to realize that I am weak. Take it away. But this is what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But then God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, the reason for your weakness is so that you would depend on Jesus. The reason that there is something introduced into your life that absolutely sucks is so that you would realize man, I can't do this by myself. The reason that there's still sin lingering in your life and even though you've been fighting hard and it's still around, maybe the reason 
that God hasn't completely taken that out of your life is to remind you, you still need grace. Has Christianity for you just become you trying to impress God? Or has it been actual dependence on his grace? Forgiveness that you don't deserve. In weakness, whatever the season may look like, it's convincing you that, hey, God must love me because of Christ. God must love me, not because of my ability to please him, but it's gotta be because of the approval of Christ. Makes the great exchange so much more beautiful that Jesus took your place and you get to take Jesus's place. He bore all the penalty for your sin and you get to receive the inheritance of the loved son. And now you get to see, you get to be seen as the righteous one. This is grace. And here's what's true about this, that God does not love strong people more than he loves weak people. He does not show favor to those who are strong in and of themselves. No, quite the opposite. God draws near to weak people because he knows it's the weak ones that need him the most. Do you need God? Do you need his strength? The only requirement for his grace is that you would need it. So he draws near to weak people. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Guys, this is the story of the Bible. Over and over, we get convinced that people, humanity, we're weak. We can't do this thing on our own. We're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to constantly do the right thing. Totally weak. Lost without our God. But he steps into the story. Pursues weak people. Not because we deserved it, but because he wants to help because he wants to be the hero. And so he is. This is the gospel that God became weak so that you could become strong in him. God did not stay far away from people who were in need, but God entered into the story in Christ and was clothed in weakness. This is the crazy upside down nature of the kingdom of God. It does not make sense. It is totally different than what we would expect. Sometimes we would expect that God would come in the form of something totally mighty, totally powerful and show himself as the strong and mighty one and make all the weak people feel kind of bad that we don't quite measure up. But instead, the unexpected gospel happens where Jesus actually becomes weak. God becomes weak so that we would know that we don't have to be ashamed of our weakness, but that God approaches the weak person with grace. I just think it's amazing that the method of God's salvation was not through force 
or coercion or power, but it was through weakness, through the cross. I can only imagine that when Paul was writing this, talking about his thorn in the flesh, that he was also thinking of his Lord and Savior on the cross at his crucifixion. Do you know what the Romans put on Jesus's head? It was a crown of thorns. Jesus took a crown of thorns that was dug into his head so that you could face the thorn that's in your life and know that God, his grace is sufficient for you in that weakness. Jesus put on a crown of thorns so that you could receive comfort and strength when the thorn comes into your life. And so the cross of Christ is proof that the way to get to God is not by hiding your weakness, not by totally eradicating weakness by yourself and making you feel like you can be strong in and of yourself, but it's actually approaching God in your weakness, knowing full well that he will not turn you away. You can confidently say these two things at the same time. I am weak and I am loved. At the same time, it's what we wouldn't expect, but it is so true and so comforting. And we know this to be true because God loved us enough to send Jesus to actually embrace weakness himself. That his death on the cross was paying for your weakness and that his resurrection proves that his strength is actually strong enough to work through your weakness and bring glory. This is the thorn experience. Weakness, which leads us to depend on God. Here's what we end up finding out about the Christian experience over years and years and what Paul is telling us here, that it's not just the heaven experience, it's not just the thorn experience, but it's both. I heard somebody talk about it this way, that it's kind of like walking as simple as it is. You've got your left foot that you step on, but then sooner than later, your right foot comes, passes your left foot, and you step with your right. In the same sense, for us as Christians, we have strength and weakness, just like walking. Heaven experience and thorn experience, one after the other. When one high moment comes, a weakness is sure to be followed. High moments, low moments, but what is our job as a Christian? It's to keep our eyes on the true gospel, the gospel of grace, that seasons of amazing spiritual experience is not the thing that earns you your relationship with God. And in your weakness, you have not fallen away from God, but that in both, God delights in you and has purchased for you relationship with him, that you can enjoy him in the amazing moments and find comfort and strength in the hard moments. And when we do that, we can echo what Paul says here in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, 
then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Your peace doesn't rest on your ability. Your peace rests on the grace that God loved and pursued you, even though you are weak. Your peace can rest on the approval that God gives you in Christ. And in that, you can be content. Let me be the first to share with you guys that I am weak. I feel like this had come full circle reading this text because actually this is the verse that I recite to myself as I walk up on the stage. Don't let this stage fool you of any strength in my own. Like I have to recite that God's grace is sufficient for me in my weakness when I step up here because it is a great joy to share the gospel with you guys each week and to open up the book. But my goodness, did I not think that this is what I was gonna do. And so there is still weakness that I'm fighting. And when I come up here, I know that I'm not the one that's able to actually cause you guys to see Jesus as beautiful or cause the gospel to take root in your life. I am weak and cannot actually be the one to make that happen. But by God's grace, he's the one that makes it come alive to you. That's not something I can do. That's something the spirit is doing inside of you. And so I am weak but his grace is sufficient for me as I get up here. It's something pretty, just like, oh, it's just wild. But when we declare like, man, I'm weak, the only result that can come from that is not my praise, not my glory, but to God. It's gotta be him. And so when we declare, hey, I'm weak, God gets the glory. So the application for us is, let's be weak together. All of us are weak, aren't we? Let's be weak together. Let's get close enough to each other and be honest with each other that yeah, I'm weak, but let's remind each other that we're loved. Get close enough where people can actually see your weakness. That's the whole point of campus group. Not that you would be impressive to one another but that you would get so close that you would actually see each other's weakness. And in that, you would be able to remind each other, yeah, you're weak, but God's grace is sufficient for you. You can trust him. You can find comfort and strength in him. That's the whole point. If you're not in a campus group, you gotta get in one. It is the best because it's pretty average. That's why it's awesome because we're not trying to impress each other. We're trying to be honest with each other and say, man, I see weakness in myself. I see weakness in you. Who can we count on to come through for us? We can count on God. His grace is sufficient for us. So let's be weak together. And what we'll see is that unlike Achilles, our weakness will not be the thing that ultimately leads to our downfall. Our weakness will ultimately be the thing that leads us to grace that our struggle will ultimately be the thing that leads us to life with God. And that is the best thing we could possibly receive. God's grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the reality of this text. 
You know that I needed it this week. You know that people in the room needed it this week. Because what we see right now, God, is, is just weakness and discouragement. And oftentimes it feels like can't do things the right way, can't beat this sin, not strong enough, not smart enough. We're weak and we're desperate, God. So we just confess that to you, Lord. We're a room full of weak people that need you. Thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient for us, that it's enough for us. Thank you that you do not shy away from us because of our weakness, but actually you draw near. I pray that you would do that right now, God, that you would draw near to us, make yourself known, comfort us, give us what we need, encourage us, give us what we need, God, you know, only you know. I pray that for the remainder of this semester and even this year, God, we would increasingly become aware of our weakness and be willing to bring that to you and bring that to others close to us so that through that, we would see the beauty of your gospel. That when we are weak, we are strong, not because of anything we can muster up ourselves, but because of your grace and your spirit working and moving in us, God. What a privilege. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your grace. Would you be praised in this place and would your name be lifted high in worship? We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.